How to Play, Episode 44, Clash of Cultures. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again. This is your host, Ryan Sturm. And today we are covering the new game that I am the most excited about, and that is Clash of Cultures. A very exciting, about four-hour civilization game. And I, I appreciate you tuning in despite my long absence. I've been sort of taking a break. It's harder to, to fit these episodes in with two little kids running around and having uh, some fun time with my family. But in response to 1,000 guild members at the How to Play Guild on Board Game Geek, I've decided that your support merits another episode of How to Play. So here we are to do another great game, a truly great game. Clash of Cultures was released in 2012. It is a two to four player game designed by Christian Markison. This episode is being recorded on June 27th, 2013. All right, listeners, I've got a special treat for you. I reached out to Christian Markison, the designer of this game, who's active on BGG, and I said, hey, do you want to come on my show? And he said yes. So all the way from Denmark, I was able to interview Christian Markison, and we did a, a short little talk beforehand about his goals for this game and what he thinks sets it apart from other civilization games. It's about 15 minutes. If you're dying to get to the rules explanation, you can fast forward ahead, but I'd urge you to listen in. It's, it's I think, pretty good interview. And then later on, Christian's going to join me for the hamster section where we give you some basic strategy for your first game. I have here as a special treat on how to play. I have a guest star. I've actually brought on the designer of Clash of Cultures. Here is Christian Markison. Welcome to How to Play, Christian. Thank you very much, Ryan. Uh, so I brought you on here today. Usually I do a segment called Why I Love This Game. And uh, I certainly will talk about why I love this game. But before I do that, as this is sort of your baby, I thought I'd let you come on and maybe talk about who you think this game appeals to, what sort of gamer uh, might might fall in love with this game. I can talk about what my inspiration was. It was obviously, you know, this, you know, the Sid Meier Civilization computer game. A lot of modern Civ games try to appeal to that uh, that kind of audience or the, that kind of uh, players with that kind of interest. Mm -hmm. You have to be uh, ready to for some a little bit of brain burning. So it's, it's it is a strategy game. I don't know if you're familiar with Merchants and Marauders, but that's. You know, that's more of a, you know, luck based, you know, just go have fun. And it doesn't really matter if you die or if you don't. Yeah. Kind of Actually, game. I just happened to play that last night. And uh, it is okay, it is a right. much different experience. If you have played Merchant and Marauders, um, that game is more of sort of an experience game. You just sort of you, you go with right. it. You flip some cards, you roll some dice and and you see what happens and you, and you laugh and you have a good time. This is not really that kind of game. No, well, uh, I hope that people will have a good time, though. But yeah. um, but it is more of a, 
uh, yeah, of a brain burner, as I said. It, you know, it's a it's a more pure strategy game. It's it's kind of an evolved version of the old school men on a map kind of game. Right. But there's this whole tech tree with all these, I don't know, forty eight advances uh, that you also have to manage. So you're kind of looking at the board, but you're also looking at your your player board and you know trying to figure out how to evolve your civilization in a in a meaningful way. Now, are you did, have you played the original Civilization Francis Tresham game? Was that an inspiration for this, or was it more just the computer game? Yeah, I've played it, and no, it was not an inspiration. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've played it a few times. It's it's, it's a lot of years ago, uh, to be honest. Right. I know it's I know it's kind of you know the classic, but it doesn't really appeal to me that much. I, I had this feeling, you know. Maybe we're just slow, but it's like an eight-hour game or something like that. Yeah. And after four hours, I had the feeling that I'd seen everything that was in the game. Mm -hmm. So I knew that the next four hours would be more of the same. And um, yeah, I was kind of uh, a little bit la missing the the development part of that game. It's you know, it's a lot of you know back and forth. And I think the the computer game much more appeals to me. And a lot of games have tackled this civilization theme. I would ask you, what were sort of your goals? What did you think you wanted Clash of Cultures to sort of succeed maybe where some of these other civilization games have failed? Obviously, the original civilization was a lot longer <clears throat> than you wanted your game to be. Uh, but what were some of the other goals to, to make this Civ game a step above some of the other Civ games that are out there? One of the you know very important things was to, you know, to make it really lean, to, you know, have a lot of stuff in there, but, you know, really try to find out what is it that makes a civilization game and then, you know, cut all the other stuff away, but, you know, still having, yeah, thematic experience. It's very important to me that the game was uh, manageable mm -hmm. and that it not be uh, fiddly. I'm, I think I think I can say that there's, when you think about how much there's actually going on in the game, there there aren't that many things you have to manipulate. You're not constantly moving around tokens, flipping tokens on the board and moving all kinds of stuff and having resources that you have to physically pay and put down on the table and take up again. It's I really tried to, you know, make it um, accessible. Maybe you might be referring to small yellow and blue cylindrical discs. For instance. <laughs> For instance. No, but uh, I, um, I understand what you're saying. One of the things I really appreciate about the game, you said, you know, you, one element of the game is uh, sort of a dudes on the map. But when you're talking about the dudes on the map and the, uh, the, the combat that's there, you're talking about maybe five or six soldiers, not, you know, 37. And uh, one of the things I right, really appreciate yeah. about the game is the way the arc of the game, the way it builds up it, in a way, Sort of mm. like I can liken it to Eclipse in that you start small, you know, there's not, it's very manageable mm. to begin, but the game sort of ev evolves. And one of the things I particularly love about this game is you get to really choose that evolution, what sort of direction you want to take mm -hmm. down. And there's there's at least four, you know, solid different strategic paths that, that the player can, can go down based on their personality and not based on defined character cards or, or things of that nature. I, I just love how the game, it, it begins small and manageable uh, because of all that mm -hmm. stripping down to its core, like you talked about, and, and you really allow the yeah. players to sort of pick their path. For a game of this kind of uh, scope, it's I think it's it's quite easy to learn, but maybe hard to master. One of the things that I think that are, that's a little hard or daunting is the tech tree. Mm -hmm. But you know the the basic rules. You could basically just start the game I think with someone yep. and just explain them. Okay, you can do this, this, and this now. Okay, 
choose something. And I think after a turn or two, they would have the game nailed, uh, rule-wise. Then comes the fun part. That's when you have to learn to, you know, figure out this tech tree. And even that tech tree, I've tried to make manageable. So while while it looks like you have a lot of options to begin with, you still have to, you know, open the advanced categories, as it's called. Yes. Uh, meaning that, that for instance, if there's a culture category where you have stuff like arts and sculptures and circus and you know advances like that, but while there are four of them, you have to buy the top one first. So at the beginning of the game, you don't have all 48 options. You you know have to kind of unlock some of these extra advances. So if if you can kind of manage to focus on that, then I think that you're you're in for a good time. And then through through the game, one or two games, you get how how it all you know fits together and hopefully you finish the game and think ah if i've just done this or that or next time i want to try this and then i've succeeded with some of the stuff i wanted to do there are a few other goals that i had one of them was that i i really wanted as much as possible to happen visually in front of you for instance the way the the cities grow in size Right. They they do that by adding pieces to the city. So you can actually see a size five city has five city pieces. So I, I really wanted to, you know, visualize that kind of growth. And the way that the, um, that happens is actually quite beautiful. If you haven't seen it, we've got this middle circular settlement and these these extra pieces, for example, the temple that has a little arc that kind of it, it almost sort of attaches. And once you build it all, you, you know, you players just want to do that because you completely surround the city with these big <laughs> buildings. And it, it's uh, it's actually quite brilliant how that all comes together. Yeah, the fun, fun thing was, you know, obviously this design has been many years on the way, but at one point early in the game, when I was still, you know, kind of, you know, doing noodles, uh, small, small sketches of how it would work, I, I had this idea of uh, different city city sizes, um, and then you could add buildings to that. So you could you could have a size three city and then you could add, say, a temple. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me, hey, why not combine the two? Why not have the temple be the growth? Mm-hmm. That's you know an example how I just kind of came together and became simplified and, and lean. And that's something I've I've seen. I'm working on a design process for a game as well. And it's funny how often you you to have these two ideas and you merge them. And that's one of the ways to really make the game more elegant. And it's uh, it's clear that this game has gone through quite a refining process. How long how long did you spend designing this game? Two three yeah. years. Yeah, and it it really plays out. And and I wanted to speak to one of the elements that you were speaking to before about the complexity of the game. Players get this uh, the player board, and it has there's 48 different technologies and it can initially maybe uh, scare someone because it's all those abilities and it's like oh my gosh this is this is too much to handle but as you say there's really only the top 10 that they have to choose from and a lot of the complexity mm. of the game is is in that is in those technologies and it emerges as players add that layer by layer. Uh, so players really don't right. have to worry about any of that to begin. And as they go throughout the game, they add you know one little one little piece and one little piece and one, and one little piece. And I think that was a good way of um, you know giving the complexity in bite-sized chunks. And it really helped mm-hmm. to make it a good experience and not an overwhelming one. Yeah, I think I think you have, but you have to kind of. Um be willing to go uh, like, okay, I don't need to do the perfect thing the first time I play yeah. it. Yep. Because if, if, if you, if you, if you're the kind of player that really wants to make every move, the 
ideal move and you want to, you know, grasp it all, then I think you'll have a, a frustrating experience. Right. Um, so you have to be kind of, you know, willing to just, okay, I might made a mistake here and there, but, you know, learn, learn it in small chunks and not worry about, okay, turn six, what do I do? Mm -hmm. Um, you can do that later when you master the game, but, you know, just, just go in and then, you know, try, have fun and, uh, be careful about military. Uh, I think, I think, uh, some, some players might underestimate military. Yeah, so um, I, I would say that some of the positives of the game we've already mentioned. I mean, it's a it's a really great civilization theme game. If you love that theme like I do, then then you're gonna love this game. It it captures that theme very well in sort of if you if you see four to five hours as a manageable playtime, and I do. I think you know it's a you can fit it in in an evening, unlike uh, the full civilization game that we were talking about earlier. And it's really a, a thematic game. You really feel the theme. And one of the the points you were bringing up about is this is not Lahav. This is not Agricola. You're not going to sit by yourself and build your little build your little engine. You have to be aware that the other players can come in and steal what you built. Right. Yeah. And I, I think some players, I've, I've put in all kinds of, you know, small uh, signals so the player can catch on when, when someone is, you know, building up military. And I, I've really tried to, to uh, you know, make these you know, small warnings in the game so, so people can react. But when you're not aware of these or you're not, you don't, you don't know the game well enough, then then I imagine that sometimes you might get a, a nasty surprise, mm -hmm. um, even even despite all those uh, s you know small tricks I've put in there to you know slow down the military. It was important to me to you know strike that balance between the build up and then also allowing military to have uh, some kind of impact, as you would imagine it would have on a on a successful civilization. Right. And and I really do appreciate that fact that you you have to be aware of the other players. It might be a, a recommendation or if you have some people are, are very sensitive to that uh, that element of the game you're you're going after. It might even be possible if you're playing with a significant other to say, you know, we're just going to use our military to attack the barbarians and just sort of sort of do our own thing. It is possible to play that way, and players, you know, even without that agreement, may choose to play that way. But another player who is very aggressive could decide to come in and and take your city, and you need to be aware of that. I appreciate that there's enough. There's only so much you can do militarily. You can only build your army so big. I appreciate that it's an element mm. of the game, but you can't really play it as the only part of the game. No, uh, at least not if you're playing against a an, an aware opponent. Right. If you're a veteran and you're playing against someone who never played it before, you could, you know, steamroll them right. uh, with your with your armies. But if if you're, you know, equal full knowledge of the game, then yeah, it's 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 Military, it's a it's a part of the game, but not dominant. All right. So, I hope. Yeah, I, I agree. And <laughs> so I think we get a, a good feel for some of the the positives of this game and and who this game might appeal to. It's a longer, but it's about four to five hours uh, strategy game. Yeah, an hour per about player. About an hour per player. Say. 
And it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of decisions to be made. Military is a part of that game, but it's a very thematic game. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite games of the last couple of years. And so if, like me, you like the Civilization game, I, I think you're going to love this one. So that's why I've chosen this for this episode. And I'm going to ask you to stick around if you would come back and join me later to give the players some advice on playing their first game. I think that would be great. So we will get back to Christian, who will help me to uh, give you some basic strategy a little bit later on in the episode. But let's continue on now with my complexity rating. I'm going to call this game a Black Diamond. Although it is a complex game, much of the complexity of the game comes from the technologies that add to the game as you play it. So the complexity sort of builds up. The core of the system is pretty easy to grasp as you're choosing three actions. And to begin with, your choices of those actions are pretty limited. So it has a a nice way of sort of unfolding. It is a very long game, so you're going to want players that are prepared for that. But it sort of eases the players in. So I'm just going to call this a black diamond. So the structure for the show, in case you forgot, is we'll have a hook, which is the introduction, the meat of the rules, and then with a hamster, I'll be rejoined by Christian Markison to give you some basic strategy. As always, I recommend having the game right in front of you or the rule book or access to the web to see the components to give you a visual understanding of the rules as I explain it here to you. But for now, let's get to the hook. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Clash of Cultures. Your people, newly armed with the essential knowledge of farming and mining, are ready to develop a culture, government, and military and transform from just another animal species to a true civilization. However, you are not alone. You must compete with the other growing civilizations and outpace them technologically, culturally, and militarily to be known as the greatest civilization of all time and win the game. Clash of Cultures is played over six rounds. Each of these rounds is divided into three turns. On each of these turns, the players will alternate taking three actions. So Archie might take three actions, then Bob's going to take his three actions, and then Charlie's going to take his three actions. And that's the turn. After three of these turns, it's the end of the round. So the game is really 18 total turns divided into six rounds. So you'll get a minimum of 18 turns, three actions in each, for a total of 54 actions. Now, the most common actions you'll do on your turn are to build a new city, to grow a city, to move your units, to build more units, or to learn a new technological advance. And at the end of the game, victory points are scored for four different categories. How many of your city pieces are on the board, the number of your technological advances, accomplishing objective cards, and building wonders. After six rounds, which will be 18 turns, which will be 54 actions, the player who has accumulated the most points will win the game. Part two, the meat, how to play the game. All right, so I gave you a a basic setup of the structure of the game. Structure being each player takes a turn by taking three actions. You repeat that three times. You go around the table, Archie, Bob, Charlie, Archie, Bob, Charlie, Archie, Bob, Charlie. Then it's what's called a status phase, which has some sort of cleanup things that you do. You repeat that six times, and then the game is over. So now let's talk about some of the pieces that come in the game. Mm 
the game components. So first of all, we have the game board, and this game board is made up of uh, groups of tiles. And the tiles are four hexes big. And depending on if you have two, three, or four players, it will depend on how many of these, these regions made up of four hexes you place on the board. Each player gets a starting region of four hexes, and then you're going to place some undiscovered regions face down randomly on the board and, and conglomerate them to make like a, a square or a triangle, depending on the number of players. So you'll only have your region, your four hexes that are discovered, and you'll have to discover the rest of them as you go throughout the game. It sort of reminds me of Eclipse in that way, except you have four of the hexes that are connected. Now, the hexes are of four different types. There is fertile, which is green, which produces food. There's mountain, which are gray and look like mountains, which produce ore. You've got forest, which is dark green and produces, you guessed it, wood. You have barren, which looks like a desert because it produces nothing. And then you have the sea. You also have some units. You'll have three different types of plastic pieces there to move around. You're going to have settlers and military units, soldiers, I guess you'd call them, and ships. And then you've got all these cool little city pieces. You've got a little central settlement piece, and then you've got four little city advancements that go around that little circle. It's actually kind of neat how these uh, four different pieces go around it. So you've got a central circular settlement, and then you've got these four pieces, for example, the temple, and it has sort of a quarter circle edge, so you can sort of attach it to the settlement. And as you add more of these city pieces, you can get the central city and the four pieces around it to build this giant metropolis that you hope to create by the end of the game. But you're going to start with just one of those little settlements on your starting region. Then you'll have a little player board in front of you. Uh, this is a lovely, lovely, wonderful player board. At the top of it, you're going to have a scale, which goes from 0 to, I believe, 8. And this is where you're going to track the different resources that you have. You're going to have your, a little wood marker and an ore marker and a gold marker. And they're all going to start on 0. You'll start the game with two food, so you'll put that on the uh, two food spot there. You also use this to track your level of culture and happiness. Then below that, you're going to see the advances. This is wonderful. You're going to see 48 advances in 12 different categories and like agriculture and construction. Uh, there are four different technology advances in each category. And there, you know, there's a six by two, two lines of six. And so you have all these different possible technologies and they're all out there on your player mat. And it's a little bit intimidating at first, but I'll help to guide you through that by pointing out some specific ones that you're going to want to take a look at. Uh, and the best part about this lovely little player board is that, you know, normally you just kind of put these cubes on your player board. This guy actually has little holes and you put the cubes inside the little holes and they stay exactly in there where they're supposed to be and they can't knock around. It's brilliant. It's really genius. And you look at it and you're like, why has no one ever done this before? Now I have 30 games that I want to go and take an exacto knife and cut little holes in the player board. Beautiful, wonderful idea. Bravo, sir. So you've got that, the player board with the advances with the little 48 
little holes in it. And whenever you get an advance, you put your little cube in your little hole, and that shows you that you have that special ability. You actually start with two of these. You're going you know, to start with farming and mining, which basically lets you get the, the food and the ore and the wood. And allows you to collect those things that, that you're going to need. Next, you're going to get dealt a couple cards. You're going to get dealt one objective card and one action card. The objective card will have a secret objective, believe it or not. But actually, it will have two different ones. There will be one on the top and one on the bottom. And the one on the top is usually like some kind of a development type action, like uh, you know, be the first person to build a temple or um, be the first person to get four cities or something like that. The one on the bottom is is more the, the violent objective, usually something about capturing a city or destroying three units. Uh, so that allows you some flexibility in how you want to play the game, whether you want to go for the top, more peaceful objectives, or the bottom, more bloody objectives. You'll also be given an action card. The action card has a, a top ability called the action ability, and so you can play that on your turn. The bottom part is uh, called a tactics ability, and if you get into combat, you can use that ability instead. So again, you have two different choices for this little action card. And throughout the game, you'll have the opportunity to get more of these objectives and action cards for you to play. So those are basically the components. We've got the game board uh, made up of regions, which are four tiles. You've got your little plastic pieces, uh, soldier ships, settlements. You've got your, also your basic settlements and the four little advances that go around it, which are temples, ports, fortresses, and, and temples, ports, fortresses, and academy. Academy, of course. And then you've got your player board, which has those 48 cute little holes in it and the scale at the top, objectives and action cards. You got all your stuff um, you know, it's about 15-20 minutes to set this game up. It's got a lot of stuff, but it's great stuff. It looks great when you got it all set up and you're ready to start taking some actions. So let's look at what the actions are that you can do on the turn. Most common actions. So as I said, how it goes is we do Archie takes three actions, Bob takes three actions, Charlie takes three actions. So you're going to have all these different choices. You can do the same action three times if you can afford to do it. But you know normally you'll do a variety of these different actions. So let's go over the most common of these. And these are nicely listed on a player aid there for you. So what you're going to want to know about right away, some of the most common actions you'll do on those first couple turns. The first one is to discover a technological advance. And how you do this is pretty simple, is you just pay two food. You start the game with two food, so if you want to do this as your first action, and that's not a bad idea, you simply pay two food by moving uh, the, the food marker, which is on the two, down to the zero, take one of your cubes, and choose one of those many advances. The next possible action is to move units on the board. You start the game with actually one settler, and it's a very good idea to get another city very early. And how you're going to do that is you're going to have to move this settler. Every move that you take, land units move one space per action. Every move that you take is one action, so you may want to move him a couple of spaces away. 
And then another common action to do is to found a city. And all you do for that is to take your settler piece, remove him from the board, and replace him with a settlement. And da-da, you've, you've started in an, another city, and you have two cities. And there's some benefits to that. And so those are some of the basic, basic actions that you're going to do, especially on the first few turns. Pay two food for a new cube, which gives you a little special ability, to move units or to found a city by taking a settler off the board and putting a new city on there. Now, a few details about that move action. When you move, if you have more than one, you can actually move a group together. Let's say I had two settlers. I could move them together one space, and that would only count as one action. And later on in the game, when you have, say, four soldiers in a space, you can move all four of those soldiers together one space for one action. And that's a, a much more efficient way of moving your guys around the board. And when you get much later in the game, when you have a bunch of guys in different spots on the board, that group of four people is called a group. And actually for a move action, you can move three different groups on the board. So I could move four soldiers that are in one hex over here, maybe two settlers that are in one hex over here, and maybe you have some boats on the river over there, and you can move all three of those for one action. And you're going to want to do that when you start moving people because that's more efficient. You can move three units or three groups of units or combinations therein, two units and one group, for example. And so move those three things up to three things for one move action. Uh, the next thing you need to be aware of is there's the terrain on the board. There's sea and mountains and forest. Those have some effects on movement, and let's talk about those. Obviously, the sea, you know, the land units cannot move into the sea. The fertile and the barren, you can move through those normally. The mountains and the forest have some special effects. If you move into a mountain, you can't move any more that turn. Normally, you could move up to three spaces in a turn. You could go move, move, move. But if you move into a mountain as your first move, then you're done for the turn. If you have some soldiers and you're moving through a forest, if you move into a forest with some soldiers, if you move your soldiers into a forest, you can't move them then into a battle after they've been into a forest. So mountains end your movement for the turn. Forests, after you move into the forest, you cannot attack. Now let's get into some more details about discovering those advances. There's quite a few rules about those. So let's, let's talk about how we get those advances and the rules for all those different cubes on your mat. I mentioned there are 12 different categories of four. You'll see them in groups of four. So we've got agriculture, which has farming, irrigation, storage, and husbandry. And then we have construction, which has mining, engineering, etc., etc. Um, maritime, education, warfare. So all these are different categories. Now you can't really pick whatever box you want. You must take the top advance first. For example, for education, you must take writing first, and then you have the choice of any of the other three that you want, public education, free education, or philosophy. So the top one is required before you take any of the other three in the, in the group there. Also, now I want you to look at maritime, education, warfare, and spirituality. I mentioned there were four little city upgrade pieces that you can build to make your city bigger. And you'll notice some yellow writing. 
there are required technologies that are required for you to build that city advance. For example, if you want to be able to build ports, you'll have to build fishing. If you want to build an academy, you'll have to build writing. If you want to get the fortress, you'll have to do tactics. And if you want the temple, you'll have to do myths. And that is actually nicely also the top one in that category. So when you take that one, you're able to take any of the other technologies in that group, and you're now able to build that little city upgrade piece. So you got to do the top one, then you can choose from the bottom three. There's also the four special ones that allow you to build the city advances. There are also three special groups that are governments. There's democracy, autocracy, and theocracy. How these work is these have a special prerequisite designated by an arrow. For example, in order to do democracy, right above democracy is the advance called philosophy. And there's a little arrow there. So if you want to uh, build a democracy, you must first do philosophy. And actually before that, in order to do philosophy, you had to do writing. And now you can take democracy. And the same rules apply with the government ones. You have to do the top one, and then you can choose from the three bottom ones. So let's go over that again. If I wanted to build a democracy, first I'd have to take education. I'd have to take the writing, which is under education, which also allows me to build an academy. Now I'm going to skip down. I can take any of the ones in education. I want to take philosophy because that's the prerequisite for democracy. And now I have to take the first one in democracy if I'm going to be a democracy. And then that's voting. And now I can choose from any of the three special democracy abilities. And you're probably going to want to do head down one of these three paths of democracy, autocracy, or theocracy, because these abilities start to get a little bit stronger. There's, there's some of them in particular. So you kind of want to, during the mid-game, and we'll talk about this more in the hamster, in the middle of the game, you sort of want to steer down one of these three paths so you can get to these governments and get some of these powerful abilities. Now, just like you might think, if I start a democracy and I take a voting, and I want to start a theocracy, I'm going to have to lose my de democracy stuff. And that's pretty bad, generally. Uh, generally, you don't really want to switch because you've already invested so much in going down that path that switching down to another route isn't usually a good idea. You are able to do it if you want to. Let's say I had built two cubes in democracy. I want to build one in theocracy. Instead of adding a new cube to the board, I take the two cubes I have in democracy and move them over to theocracy. In essence, I lose one cube uh, for doing that switch over. So you can sort of do that switch over, but you can only have cubes in one of these governments at a time, which sort of makes sense. You can only be one type of government. But wait, that's not all. You'll notice that some of these advances are outlined in either blue or yellow or nothing. If they are outlined in blue, when you take it, these are cultural advances and you get a culture boost. What happens when you do that is you move your culture level token up one space. And what this represents is the maximum amount of culture tokens that you can have. It also triggers event cards. So I move that token up one space, but that is not a culture resource. I then take a circular culture token 
and I put that sort of on my player board and I can spend the culture token, but the culture level doesn't go up or down. That just represents how much culture I can have. Also, as I move that culture level up the track, that is what triggers the events. When your culture level or your happiness level, which is going to go up when you take those yellow outlined advances, gets to level 3, 5, or 7, on the track you'll notice there's a box there It says, EVENT! I have to say it like that because it has an exclamation point. EVENT! And it's also a little bit frightening when you get one of those. As soon as you take that advance and you move to the track and it gets to that part that says, EVENT! Then you get an event card and you flip it up and stuff happens. So the yellow outline text, for example, myths work the same way, except they affect your happiness and they give you mood tokens. They're lovely tokens. They're circular tokens with a yellow smiley face on them. So let's say I take myths. I slide up my happiness level. I take one of those mood tokens. And again, just like the culture levels, when they reach that event box, you're going to get an event card and you're going to accumulate these smiley face circle tokens and these culture circle tokens. You'll use these for some special actions, which I'll talk about in a little bit. So there's um, you could flip three events from the culture, three events from the mood. So you could have six events uh, during the game, possibly. But the takeaway from this is it's important to understand when you're choosing which advance to take, whether they have a yellow outline, because those are going to give you the bonus mood token, a blue outline with the bonus culture token, or no outline, they won't give you any special thing. That might be a consideration when you're choosing them, because you might want the token or you might want to avoid the event. All right, so now we're going to talk about three different actions you can take that activates your city. You start the game with only one city, a little settlement there, and you can only activate it one time. Well, you can activate it a second time, but it makes your people angry. Boo! And you're not going to want to do that because nobody likes to get booed. Boo! Unless you're Mr. Burns. So basically, you're, until you get more than one city, you're only going to want to do one of these things once. And so you're going to have to choose between them. The things you can do when you activate a city, well, there's more of them. But the most basic things you're going to do when you activate a city are to collect resources. It would be the most common thing you do. Build more units or make your city larger. So you can only do that once per turn. So you got those three actions. I might collect resources, discover in advance, and move my guys. Because if I go collect resources, collect resources again on the same turn, that makes my people sad because they have to work hard and nobody likes to work that hard. All right, so activate in a city. Collect resources, build units, increase city size. Those are three different options for you to choose from when you activate your city. Let's go over each of them in more detail one at a time. First of all, collecting resources. When you get your resources, you get a number of resources equal to the size of the city. And so your size of your city is only one. So you can get one resource. So that's one of the reasons you want to make your city bigger because it gets you more resources. Also, it's possible to make your people happy by giving them a little happy token. If they're happy, you produce one more resource. So you'll produce two instead of one. But at the beginning of the game, you just have this size one settlement and they're not happy. So if you want to collect resources, all you do is you pick a, 
a hex on the board that the settlement is on or adjacent to. At the beginning of the game, you have one that's on a fertile land and that produces food, and you're next to a forest which which produces wood and a mountain which produces ore. So you just pick one of those things. Say, all right, I want a food, and you move your food token up one, and that's your activation. Don't do it again that turn or your people will get sad. But that's really kind of inefficient. You either want to make that city larger or make them happier first because then you'll be able to collect two resources. I could collect, say, one wood and the one food. Now, the next thing you can do with activating a city is to build more units. Units being a settler who can walk out and build more cities for you, which will be nice. Or army units, which you can use to keep in the city to protect them or to go attack barbarians or the other players. You can build units, same thing, equal to the size of the city, plus one if your people are happy. So if you're going to take that action right now, you can only build one unit. The unit cost is there on your player aid. Settlers take two food. A soldier or army unit takes a, a food and an ore. Later in the game, you'll be able to build ships if you have a port, and those cost two wood. So hopefully later in the game, you might get up to a size four city. You'd have a bunch of resources, and you could build maybe a settler and three armies with one action. So the next thing you can activate your city for is to increase city size. And this is one of the reasons you want to take that settler and build another settlement, is because in order to increase the size of your city, to get a level two city, that means a city made up of two city pieces, you need to have two separate cities on the board. So I can't increase to a level two city until I have a second city. And I can't increase to a level three city, that is a city with three city pieces. So that means the regular settlement and two of those bonus upgrade pieces, the temples and the academies we're talking about. You can't have three of those on the same spot until you have at least three separate cities on the board. And that's a, a clever little mechanic. You can't uh, super grow this city until you build more settlements and sort of spread out. And then you can start making your cities bigger. And that's why one of your first goals is going to be to take that settler and get him to build another city so that you're able to make one of your cities bigger into a level two city or maybe both of them bigger into a level two city and then you can get another settlement get another city so that you can make one of your cities a level three city so it will produce more and build more units and it's even better if you have two big cities because as i said you can only use each of them once so if you use your real big city to collect resources then you can't build units there the same turn and so it's nice to have two big ones because you can use one of them to collect resources and the other one to build units or vice versa you could use one of them to collect resources and use the other one and make it even bigger and so having only one big city slows you down eventually when your goals is to get two or or even three big cities so you can really start rolling. So how do you make a level two city? So a level one city is just that little round settlement piece. If you want a, a little upgrade piece, like let's say the academy, first you need the advance that it requires. For example, the academy requires writing, which is one of those cube advances. It says right there, academy. You can't build the academy until you do that. Then in order to get to a level two city, I need to have a second city. So I needed to have sent my settler out there and built another city. 
And now I can use an action, spend the resources, it's a wood and ore and a food, for all of these increased city size for picking one of these, the temple, the fortress, or the port. And then I can take the piece and I can add it there. Hooray! Why did I want to do that? Because now I'm going to collect more resources and be able to build more units there, and that will be awesome. But also, each of these different upgrades, the academy and the temple and the port, each has a little special thing that they can do. For example, when you build the port, that's going to allow you to build ships. When you build the academy, you get a different kind of resource called ideas. Ideas are a special resource you only get usually through the advances that you have. And so when you build the academy, that's another way you get them. I would move my ideas, which is the little burning candle, and you move that up two spots. The only thing that ideas do is you use them for more of those cubes, more of those advances instead of food. And that's a nice thing because food is very valuable. You need it for units. Uh, you need it for settlers. You need it for a lot of things. So getting those ideas is a secondary nice way to uh, buy more of those advances. So that's increasing your city size. You have to have, if you want uh, your second piece, you need to have two cities, you need to have the advance requirement, and, and then you need to spend the resources and use an action to do that. And you're only gonna go up one level with one of these actions. You can't jump two increase city sizes for one action. That would be two separate actions and two city activations. So you would make your people angry because you'd be activating the city twice if you were to try to do that. One increase per action. All right, so I said you can only activate a city once by collecting resources or building units or increasing the city size. If you do two of those things, say I collect resources in order to get the resources to increase that city size, what does that do? Well, it makes your people sad. Your default, all of your cities start off neutral. If you activate it more than one time, then they become angry. You get a little circular token with a frowny face on it, and they go, boo, boo you, you stink. And that does a lot of bad things to you. Now you can only activate it once per turn. You can only produce and build one resource or build one token. So that advantage you got by making it bigger, it doesn't really work. And also you can't grow it anymore until you can you get them not to be angry. So having an angry city makes it really pretty worthless for activating it. And you'll usually want to avoid that. So how do you move them from angry to not angry? Well, that is one of the next common actions, and that is civic improvement. And that's what these mood tokens are used for. Remember, when you took certain advances, they had a little yellow outline, and they gave you a yellow smiley face. And these are mood tokens. And one of the main uses of these is to make your cities happier. You spend these mood tokens equal to the size of the city, and it increases it one level. There are three levels, neutral, which is what all your cities start with, happy, or angry. So your starting city is going to start neutral. As soon as you get one of those mood tokens, it's a good idea to spend a mood token to make it happy. You signify it just by putting that smiley face right next to the city. Because now you've increased the production of that city by one and the building capacity of that city by one. And that is good. You also want to do it early because if you later upgrade that city, it's harder to make them happy. Say I add an academy to that city. 
Now it's a level two city. In order to go from neutral to happy, I'm gonna have to pay two mood tokens to do that. So if you get a really large city and it becomes sad, then that's really sad for you. If you had a level four city and they were angry, you would need four mood tokens to put it back to neutral. So the civic improvement, that's an action. Say I'm taking civic improvement and you can spend as many of those mood tokens and increase as many of the cities as you can afford. Normally you don't have a ton of those mood tokens. So you're probably doing one or maybe two cities and that's all you're doing. But as I said, I really recommend you doing this early with your first couple cities, make them happy so that they will produce more for you. All right, those were the most common action. And there's really, I guess, seven of them. So let's go over them again really quickly. Pay two food to get a cube, put it on your board. Move three units or groups of units. And for the land units, it's one space per action. Found a city, turn one of your settler pieces into a, into a city thing. Collect resources, build units, make your city bigger. All of those three things activate your city and you can only use the city once to do them or their mood will decrease one level. So if they're neutral, they'd become angry. If they were happy, they would become neutral. Civic improvement, making your people happier by paying mood tokens. Those are the most basic things you're going to do. So the first couple of turns might look like this. You might uh, discover in advance that makes your people happy as your first action. Use the happiness to make your, your first settlement happier. And as your third action, collect resources. And now you'd collect two resources. Then maybe next turn, you collect resources again. You discover in advance with the two food you've gotten from all those resources. And you move your settler one space. And that's your second turn. So you can see it's going to go a little slow until you start ramping up and having more units and be, being able to produce more things. Okay, let's get to some of the other concepts of the game. Let's go to ships. Okay, so you can't build ships until you have a port. And you can only build ports in a city that's adjacent to a sea space. Makes sense, right? You wouldn't want a port sort of in a field of wheat i suppose so once you have a a city that's adjacent to sea you could build a port and you want to face that towards the sea space and then whenever you produce ships they're going to go into that sea space next door now if your enemy happened to build some ships and park them uh, right into that space where you produce ships well right after you produce the ships there's going to be a fight so you can sort of blockade people in that way, just, just so you're aware of that. The nice thing about ships and those land units, as you know, they only move one space for each action. The ships can go as far as they can reach. So if there's a, um, say there's a, a lake of like six sea hexes, you can move your ship from one all the way to the other edge in one action. Now the other really cool thing about ships, I haven't talked much about the advances, but there's one advance, the end of the, the sea or the maritime advances called navigation. And navigation allows you to travel along the outside of the board to sort of go around the world, if you will. So if you have a, a sea space on the edge of the board and you got ships in it and you have this navigation advance, you can now leave sort of outside where is usually nothingness in board game land and travel along the outside to the next sea space and, uh, and travel that way. And that's really neat the way that works. I love it. 
Ships are also used for transporting land units. You could transport army units or settlers, and each ship can hold up to two of those of, of any combination. And how that works is the land units must use their move action to move onto the ship. Then the ship can move, and that's uh, two of your moves for the action. And then it takes a, a additional or a second move action to take your troops off the boat. So it really takes two whole actions to transport your your troops on ships. You have to put them on for the first one, then you can move the ship, and then in a future action you can take them off. And that's that's just their move action to go from the ship to the land where they're they're now at. And that could be an attack. Get two ships, you get four soldiers. First action, move the soldiers onto the ships, then move the ships. Second action, unload the troops onto the city and you have your immediate attack. One thing I did not mention, soldiers you can have in, in a space is four. You're max to four. Now it's not a problem for any other units because you only have a max of four of them anyways, but the soldiers, I think you have 10 or 12 or something, but the most you can ever have is four in a space. So if you have two soldiers in your city, you are limited to only buying two more because you can never get above four. But of course you could spend an action to move those two soldiers and then on your second action build four soldiers into that hexagon. You just can only have four soldiers in one hexagon at a time. Alright, let's talk about exploring now. So exploring. Uh, one thing we didn't mention is when you're moving those settlers, you know, you've got your one starting space with four hexes on it. You may go out into the great unknown. And when you move your, your settler or your soldier or whatever it might be into the great unknown, you must declare which of the hexes in that region that you're going to. Then you flip it over. It's going to have a variety of spaces on it. Sea and mountain and, and um, barren and fertile. There are a few rules you have to follow when you move your, your land unit onto that piece because you may have a choice in how to orientate it, but there's some specific rules you have to follow first, and if all those rules are kosher, then you can turn it whichever way you desire. First of all, he can't just end up in the water, so it cannot be C. Then, if there is water on the board that you can connect, you have to connect it. If there is not, then you have to put the water on the outside. So, he can't land in water, then you have to connect any water on the board, and then water has to go on the outside. Now, if there's a lot of land on it, if there's two fertile spaces, there'll also be a barbarian icon on there, and the barbarian icon is really hard to see, so you got to look really, really carefully. If there is that barbarian icon, you're going to have to pick one of those spots, it's your choice, to put a barbarian settlement, it looks just like your settlements, and one barbarian there. And that's bad for you because now if event cards come up that say, you know, barbarians attack, you're going to have barbarians next to you and they're going to come try to smack you. Now, when you explore with ships, same sort of thing. You might venture off into the great unknown. Uh, first of all, you have to place it so there's not a mountain there. It's, you know, obviously the reverse is true. You have to place it so there's sea um, on the, the space that you declared you're going into if it's possible. If not, you just sort of bounce, and that's, that's sort of your action. Then you, you need to connect the water. The second rule is to connect the water. Uh, and then the third rule is to put the water on the outside. So first, 
put it so that you can enter it, then connect the water on the board if possible, then put the water on the outside. So there's those certain rules you gotta follow to make sure that the, the board that you're creating makes sense. You can also, as I said with that navigation, you can explore around the outside of the board. So let's say I leave uh, the corner of the board. I go around the edge of the board until I get to one of those cloudy undiscovered hexes, and then I flip that tile over and follow those same rules. So now let's get to the combat system. So combat. First thing you gotta know about combat is there's sort of a required technology if you want to be a combatician, and that is tactics. You'll notice if you read tactics, it says your armies can move. So if you want your army pieces to be able to move, you gotta get this tactics. And tactics is of course pretty important anyways because you need to get it to get the fortress and have access to all the other military technologies. So that's kind of an important one. Then let's say you get a couple armies and you move them. Sometimes it's a good idea to move your settler with your armies. So if they, they get attacked, they don't just die. Let's look at the basics of combat. Real simple situation. Let's say I have two army pieces. My opponent has one army piece. I take a move action to move my two army pieces to where his one army piece is. Then remember how we had those action cards in our hands and they have those tactic special abilities players can declare to use them now again this is the second ability of tactics if you don't have the tactics advance you can't play those cards the bottom part of those cards the attacker decides if they're going to play one they put it face down then the defender decides if they want to play it and they play it face down and then both of those are revealed they do things like you know give you extra hits or make you harder to hit or make it so the defender can run away something like that then we get into the combat. The combat is very simple. You roll a die for every army that you have. So my attacker, Archie in this case, had two army pieces, so he's gonna pick up two dice and roll them. The defender, Bob, had one army piece, so he picks up one die. He rolls it. Now how you decide if they hit or not, you add up the pips of all the dice and you divide by five to get the hits. Here's how it doesn't work. And this is, I don't know why I keep thinking it works this way. One through fours are not automatic misses and fives and sixes aren't the only hits because if you have two armies who roll under five, you can add those together and make a hit. You add it up and then you divide by five. So let's say Archie rolled a three and a four. Three plus four is seven. Seven divided by five is one hit. Let's say Bob rolled a two. Well, he didn't get a hit. I got one hit, I killed his piece, he did not kill my piece, battle over. That's the end of the battle round. Our battle is over because one side doesn't have any, any fighting pieces, but if there were fighting pieces left on both sides, you would just repeat this process again. You can use another card in the next round of combat, and you keep going. At the end of a round of combat, the attacker can decide to retreat back to where he came from or it can decide to keep attacking. The defender doesn't really have a choice. And you just keep going until one side or both sides is dead. You can have a simultaneous death. If you capture a player's city, 
you get to take all of their pieces, their settlement and their city pieces, and replace them with pieces of your color. And if that city was not angry before you attacked it, you get a gold for every piece that you capture in this way. Uh, whoever the loser is who lost the city gets a free settler to put in another one of their cities. And then that city that you just took becomes angry. So let me just clarify this for you. If you have a monster city, say a level four city, that's worth four victory points, and you have no soldiers in it, and you're three spaces away from a soldier, the person on their turn could take their soldier, go one, two, three, and claim your level four city. All your pieces would come off, they'd replace it with theirs, they would get four gold, they would do a happy dance, and you would call your mommy. And that is bad. And that's why you need to build some soldiers to defend your cities, not only from the other players, but for these barbarians that are going to show up and populate an attack due to those event cards that come up. All right, so let's talk about those barbarian cities. You're going to have them pop up as a result of flipping a tile and, and having one be next to you, or from an event card is going to force you to place one of those. And you may want to go and kill those barbarian cities because you get stuff for it, and you can keep their city, which is kind of nice. So you'd have to take your soldiers and go into that barbarian city and defeat the barbarians there. There might be one or two or three. And you go through that combat system, just as we talked about before. As your reward for killing the barbarians, you get one gold for every barbarian you defeated. And then you can decide to keep that city. It's just a little level one city there and make it your color. And they're angry. They're mad because the barbarians don't want to be under your control. So put one of those angry tokens on there. Or you can just blow it up. And sometimes that's a good idea to do as it, it might just be in your way and you might not want it there. If you blow up the city, you earn one extra gold. I should probably tell you what gold does. Uh, you get gold if you, if you capture these cities. It's also possible to get gold from a lot of the advances in the game. Gold is a wild resource. You can spend it for wood or ore or food. So you can use it for anything, for building or for advances. It's really nice to have. How does sea combat work? Say maybe you got, you know, four sea tiles all in a row and there's a, a Bob is sitting there with his ships in the way and you want to get through them. Well, you're going to have to, when you get to his, his ships, you're going to have to stop. You can't move through his ships. You're going to have to stop there and fight him. So you have a naval battle just the same way you do the land battle. You roll one die per ship. After the ships fight, they can't move anymore. They're stuck there. Also, if a ship is destroyed and it has, say, two soldiers on it, then those units obviously are destroyed as well, which might make you sad. If you have a ship-on-ship -ship battle, the soldier units aren't going to participate. They're going to be below the decks in their hammocks or whatever, playing a game of teach you. But that's how combat works. You get one die per person. Um, you know, Each round, you could play a card. You throw the dice. You add them, you divide by five, and you kill people. And then if you need to, you keep doing it over again until one side goes kerplooey. All right, let's talk more about those events. Event cards. Do you remember how you get events? Were you listening? Well, way back, about, I don't know, 25, 29 minutes ago, I said that when you get a tech that has a yellow or a blue outline, you move your happiness level or your culture level up. It starts at zero. And when you get to three, 
five, or seven with either of those markers, you're going to immediately have to stop what's going on and flip an event card. Now, there are two parts of the event card. There's the text, which you're going to want to read right away. But stop! Don't do that! Because there's also probably, uh, likely, an icon. And that icon is going to have you do something first. There's four different icons. One of them are good, and three of them stink. And a lot of times you don't want to get to these event levels because you're just worried something terrible is going to happen to you. Um, first one is a, a gold token. That just means you get two gold. Then there's an exhausted icon with a red X on it. You're going to have to get one of those red Xs and place it on a non-barren spot on either a, a fertile, a woods, or a mountain spot. And you're going to have to put that on there. And now that spot doesn't collect resources anymore, which stinks. The next thing is barbarian spawn, meaning we're going to get more barbarians. If you see this icon, that means you're going to get a settlement and another barbarian. And you have to put it close to your cities. Two spaces within two spaces, one or two non-barren land spaces next to your cities. Then you're going to get one more barbarian and you can put him in any barbarian settlement. Either the one you just placed down, hopefully not. Hopefully there's another one on the board closer to your opponent and you put it next to them. So you'll get a barbarian and a settlement next to you and one more barbarian to put on the board with barbarian spawn. It's, so it's, that's a barbarian and a plus sign. Barbarian and a sword means barbarians attack and they're going to attack you. So if it's your event, you flip over the card then the barbarians next to you with the most barbarians are going to attack you. You're going to find one that's within two spaces of your cities that has the most barbarians, and they're going to attack the closest city. Fortunately, too, the barbarians can walk on water. So if it's across the water, they just walk across and they attack. So say there's three barbarians there. They each get a die. They roll once. They are the attackers. If there are three barbarians, you roll them all, you add, you divide by five. Hopefully you have some soldiers there to defend. If they hit, first they hit your units. You get to choose whether it's uh, your settlers or your armies. If you have no units there, they're going to just knock over one of your city pieces. You get to choose whether you want your academy or your temple to go. If it's just a level one city, they're going to knock it out completely. They'll attack just for one round, and then they go back to their home. If the barbarians destroyed any of the pieces, then your city becomes angry. And so that's what barbarians attack do. They take the guys with the most, attack your closest city, they attack once, hit your guys first. If not your guys in your city, that makes you sad, and then they go back to their homes. And then the barbarians go like this. Oh, I missed that sound effect. It's one of my favorites. So those are just the icons, the mine, the exhausted, barbarian spawn, barbarians attack. And then you'll have text, something random is going to happen to you. And, you know, maybe you're going to get some money. Maybe everybody's going to get some money. Maybe there's a volcano that's going to kill some people. Maybe there's one of these great people, like a, a great architect or something. And what that does is it sits on the sits on the board and people can take an action to claim it and it gives them special powers. So there's all sorts of neat little cool events that, that can happen to your civilization. Sometimes they're good, most of the time they're not. But that's how events work. You do the icon first, then you read the text. All right, so let's get to some of these other things that you could do on your turn. You'll do less often, but 
other options that you have. We went over seven of the most basic things, such as moving and building advances, but there are, you know, probably five or six other options that you actually have. So let's go over that. Other things you can do on your turn. So we talked about what those mood tokens do. You use them to make your, your cities happier. Let's talk about what those culture tokens do. Uh, they have probably two major uses. And one of them is to culturally influence your opponent. You know, you, you send your McDonald's into their cities and and uh, that scores you victory points. Well, actually, what, you, what you're doing here is you can try to take control of one of the player's city pieces. So they got you know a little settlement and an academy next to it. You can say, oh, I'm going to take control of that academy. You can try to do that. And if you take one of those pieces away, each of those pieces are worth a victory point. So you're taking one victory point from them and giving one victory point to yourself. All right, so how do you do that? Your target has to be at least size two. And then you need to be within range. The range of your city is the size of it. So if I had just a level two city, I can target a, another city that is two spaces away. But wait, I could boost my range by spending some of those culture tokens. So if there was a city four spaces away, I could spend two more culture tokens to increase my range. Two plus two is four. Of course, if I had a level four city, I could influence any city within four spaces of me. Hooray! A strange little exception here is that if your city is happy, it doesn't increase your range, unlike the production and the building. That's why you need to use culture tokens, and the mood doesn't have anything to do with it. It just threw me for a loop, so I thought I'd give you a heads up as well. So how do you get to steal one of those pieces and control it? Well, it's very simple. You roll a die, and if you get five or six, then you get to control it. But here's where the culture tokens come in useful. You can spend culture tokens to boost this roll, and you can do it after you roll the die, which I always appreciate. So if you rolled a three, and then you'd say, all right, I'll spend two more culture tokens to bring it up to five to make it a success. And then you can take their academy and replace it with an academy of your color. You can succeed at this one time per turn. You can fail, however, as many times as you want. So I could target it, roll, fail, first action. Target it, roll, fail, second action. Target it, fail, roll, third action. Hooray! If you have a city and someone has influenced it, and they have um, something of their color in it, you can't do that action anymore. However, you could use another one of your cities to target your own city to try to get that piece back. So that's one of the actions you can take. You probably won't take it till really a lot later in the game, maybe around four or five or something like that. There's a lot of other actions that will become available as you progress through the game. Some of them come through those action cards. You get dealt one of those a turn, and some of them will use this abbreviation AAA, and that stands for as an action. Also, some of the advances that you get will have that on there. AAA, as an action, take this or do this. And that means it counts as one of your three actions. Now, sometimes I get a little bit confused with all of these different actions. Some of the actions are a little involved, and so I'll get in, into one of my actions, like my move action, and then I'll finish it and I'll be like, huh, how many actions did I do again? 
And so I really like to have a way to keep track of that. Here's my suggestion. You can take it if you want. Just take three of those little smiley face tokens and put them smiley face up in front of you on the top of your player aid. And as you do an action, simply flip one of those over. And then when you get into one of the more complicated actions, like a combat as uh, action number one, then you'll resolve the combat and you'll look at your smiley faces and you'll be like, oh, look. I still got two more actions left here. I got two more smiley faces. And you'll be good to go. And then each turn, just sort of flip them back over. So that's that's a little suggestion for you. So many of the advances have different actions you can take. So you can say maybe, you know, take this action and, and get mood tokens or something along those lines. One of them is very important, and that is the engineering advance has as an action, activate one of your cities to build a wonder. And this is the only way to build the wonders. The wonders are in a face down stack at the beginning of the game. And as you as you go, as people uh, take engineering or they take this monuments advance, some of these wonders are going to become available. One of them will flip up. And then you can use this engineering ability to as an action build a wonder. The wonders have the resource cost on the top and the ability sort of underneath there. They are very expensive. And so one of the things about them is you're going to need to build up a lot of resources. It's usually about 20 total resources, I guess 15 resources and five culture tokens. And this is the other second major thing that you use culture tokens for. You're going to need to get five of these, have five of these on hand. So you might take some of these culture advances just so you get enough of these culture tokens to build a wonder. And then you need a bunch of wood and ore and maybe use some of your gold and, and food to help you build one. So what you do if you want to build one, you got to build up all that stuff. You're going to say, as an action, I'm going to use engineering. And then you pick one of the available wonders that have flipped up. And they have prerequisites. It's always engineering. You have to have engineering. And then there's one other specific advance that you're supposed to have. And then you get to take that card, say, I build the Great Pyramids. And then, huzzah, I get to grab hold of the wonder that is the cardboard stand that is the Great Pyramids. A cardboard stand? A cardboard stand? You have all these beautiful, lovely plastic miniatures, but the Great Pyramids is a cardboard stand? Ah, oh, that's so disappointing. So you, you, take your, you take your cardboard standy and you put it next to the city that you activated and that's where the great pyramids is and that's good because it's worth five victory points which is a lot in this game and it also will probably have like a special ability that you'll get you have to be careful with that city because of course if a, a opponent takes it over not only do they get all the points for your city but they'll also claim your wonder and get the points for your your wonder as well and so that's how you build wonders as an action with the engineering advance and some of those other advances, I'm not going to go through every single one of them. Some of them have different as an action abilities to, to take different things. And you'll discover those as you go throughout the game. So there's a lot of different actions that you can take. Uh, the basic ones I mentioned, but also the cultural influence. You can play cards to get an action. Uh, you can do these advanced actions. So that's why these smiley faces are really useful. 
And there's even some of these advances that give you what's called free actions. And some of the cards do that too. And that means you get to do something, but it doesn't cost you an action. And those are very nice, but sometimes can add to the confusion of your turn. So if it says as a free action, just means you get to do something and it doesn't cost one of your three actions. The last thing you can do on your turn, it's an not an action, doesn't count as an action, is you can trade with the other players. Now, truth be told, I haven't seen this in real life actually happen. But if you want to add a little negotiation element to your game, you can talk to the other players and say, all right, I, I have this card that I can't really do anything with. Will you give me you know, a wood for this card? You can do that. And if you know both players agree to it, uh, you can exchange those things. You can exchange resources and objective cards and action cards. I could see sometimes you draw an objective card and it's really worthless or really hard for you to do, but really easy for another player. And that might be a way you might be able to work out a deal with someone. So it's an option there. It's available. You can choose to ignore that option if you want, but just let you know that that's in the rules. So those are some of the many, the cornucopia of things that you can do during your turn for your choices for your three actions. So how does this all wrap up? Well, first we got to talk about the status phase. Archie takes three actions. Bob takes three actions. Charlie takes three actions. It goes around three times. And then it's the end of the round. We have a little turn marker, and we're actually going to move it down three spaces, and that's the end of the column. That's round one. And then we have a status phase. The status phase is sort of a cleanup phase where, where you have a, a couple little steps to clean up the round. Let's talk about what happens on the status phase. So in the status phase, there's, there's five steps. First is you reveal your completed objectives. You remember those objective cards you got at the beginning? You'll get one at the beginning. Well, if you manage to do it, you'd say, hey, I did this objective, and that's worth two victory points. And at the beginning, you probably won't do one for two or three turns, but later in the game, you might have one or even two or maybe three that you've completed, and you announce that. Then, a really fun part is you get a free advance. You get to take your cube and put it on a free technology. It's very exciting. And that actually happens in turn order. And that's pretty important because uh, someone could get an advance. Remember those those tracks? Someone could get an advance that gave move them up on the culture track. And so they could move up the culture track and that, they would get an event card and that would sort of interrupt the status phase. And you would pick up that that event card and someone could get a plague or something and that would affect all of the players and before you got the chance to build your sanitation advance because it happens in turn order so just make sure to to go through that in turn order then you're going to get more cards you get an action card and and a new objective card which is which is nice another goal there then each player has the option to destroy one of their level one cities with any, you know, one without any extra parts and take a gold. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, there are situations when you would want to do it. It is sort of rare if you know an opponent is going to take it or if it's getting in the way for your resource production because it's next to one of your other cities. Um, you just might want to blow it up. Then we figure out who the start player is. And we use those levels to do that of the, the culture level and the happiness level. Those culture levels and happiness levels, they have 
really three functions. They, they determine when the event cards are drawn. They also determine the maximum amount of tokens you can hold of that type. So if I have a level three culture, I can only hold three culture tokens. And that's kind of a problem if I want to build a wonder. So I got to, you know, get that up a little bit higher. But the third thing those do is you add those up to see who gets to decide who the start player is. So I might have level two culture and level four happiness, two plus four is six. All the other players, you know, figure out what their total is. Whoever has the most gets to decide who will be the start player for the next round. Sometimes it's an advantage to go first, like early in the game, as you can sort of uncover the territory and maybe stake your claim. Later on in the game, it might be nice to go last and have the last action of a round because you can see where players move and then maybe make a surprise attack or something along those lines. So it is kind of a nice advantage to figure out who's going to go first. If no one has more than the current start player, then they just get to stay the start player. Otherwise, if someone has more, they get to choose. If there's a tie, whoever is the closest in turn order to the previous start player, they would get to choose uh, who the next start player would be. And that's the status phase. You do objectives, you get a free advance, you get an action and objective card, you can blow up a city. We figure out who the start player is. Should try to kind of cook through that quickly so you can get back to the action. So when does the game end? Usually the game ends once you've gone through these whole that whole round process six times. And when you do that, you get to the final status phase, you reveal objectives, and then that's it. Then the game is over. It is possible for the game to end another way. If a player has been eliminated from the game by having no cities, uh, this might happen if a player is silly and never builds any army guys to protect his cities or, you know, just is a little bit careless. Then this status phase will also trigger the end of the game. Truthfully, I suppose that player isn't eliminated. He can still total up his score. However, if he were to win, having no cities on the board, then all of the other players have done something terribly, horribly wrong. And at that point, you'll add up the victory points. You get victory points for four major categories. First of all, you get points for all your city pieces. Um, a city piece is one piece. So, you know, you start with a little round piece, and if you add, say, a temple, a port, and academy to it, that city is made up of four pieces, and it's worth four points. And so you'll probably have between 10 to 15 of these city pieces scattered around the board. And then the next category of points is your cubes, your advances. Each advance that you've gotten is worth half a victory point. So you'll probably rack up like between 20 or 30 of these advances throughout the game. And so that'll be between, say, 10 to 15 victory points. And then the third thing is your objective cards. Hopefully, you know, you're going to get about six of those during the game, maybe more. Hopefully you'll meet, you know, between three and five or six of those. And that could be worth, you know, 10, 12 more victory points. And finally, you might have built a wonder, and those are worth five victory points. So you total that up, and usually people have between, say, 30 and 40 points. 40 is a pretty good score. And whoever has the most points is the winner of the game. And if there's a tie... And whoever has the cardboard pyramids of power wins the ties. I'm not kidding. Cardboard pyramids of power rule. Part three, the hamster. How to win the game. 
All right, now it's time for the strategy section of the podcast. I've asked Christian to come on back and help give you some tips of playing your first game. So let's sort of walk through it early game, mid game, late game. Someone's playing their first game. You're playing with them, the designer. You know the game very well. Uh, someone who's just starting out, you know, they, they might be a little bit intimidated by all the different action choices and some of the different technologies. What would your advice to them be? Well, the first thing I would say was, I would prepare them that although there is an elephant on the cover, there's not an actual elephant in the game. Oh, uh, man. I've, uh, <laughs> Why is there no elephant? I have... love that elephant. It's so great. And you know what? I've never missed that there was an elephant until now. Is it is right. And oh. I, and I think, I think if I told people then, uh, yeah, it wouldn't have sold as well. So, uh, yeah, that really disappointed a lot of people. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing what I can do about that. But until then, um, will there be an elephant in the yeah. expansion um, or will there be another animal on the cover of the box who's actually not in the expansion like a donkey or something i think i would throw people off by you know <laughs> just throwing a ufo in there yeah. or yeah. You know, something that's like a great or zombies um, you could just do zombies it'll sell like hotcakes yeah yeah it would. <laughs> all right so getting okay, back well, that, that... to basic strategy someone sitting down for their first game what what would you advise wow. them well, um, first of all, I would tell them not to worry about the, the uh, cultural influence action. Yes. That's something you do later in the game. So I would tell them not to worry about mm -hmm. that. Focus on moving their settler out into, uh, out into the world. And then uh, I would tell them it's very important to very fast be able to produce two food. Because two food is what you need to build settlers. It's what you need to advance, that is biotechnology. So they, they would have to um, either, you know, build up a size two city or do what's called uh, civic improvement, which is to make your city happy. So it acts as a size two city. I would, I would tell them to, you know, do that pretty fast so they could, uh, yeah, generate those two food with each uh, activation of their city. Yeah. That's a that's paramount to getting you know getting your engine going. Yeah, I think that that's good advice. You got you have to be able to produce two foods so you can get another advance so you can start start down the path. Also, getting that production of that first city up. First few technologies, you know, there's a lot of choices there. Which ones would you would you point people towards? Uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of people online say that they always go for irrigation first. Okay, do you agree um, with that? Um, no, <laughs> but uh, but. <laughs> But that, but that might not, uh, I, I mean, I've noticed that some people are very, you know, analytical about how they play. Gamers? Analytical? So, so I, huh. <laughs> what? But I, I'm not actually. Um, I'm more, you know, gut feeling kind of guy. So, um, yeah, I, I, it might be, irrigation might be the, the, you know, the sensible choice, but sometimes I would go for something else, depending on, you know, kind of on my objectives, but also on my mood. Usually I move my settler out, mm -hmm. and if I'm close to sea, then uh, I, would, I uh, would often go for fishing okay. first. Yeah, I think irrigation is, is a good choice. Uh, there's a couple, I think, if you don't, maybe not your first, but they almost seem like you have to get them at some point. Irrigation is one, storage is one, and of course the building prerequisites. You know, you're gonna obviously choose which one based on the path you're going, but you're gonna wanna pick one of them, whether it's the the fishing, like you said, or the myths for the temple, or the the fortress is really nice, so the tactics. So those are, those are a few of the ones that you're probably gonna look at. Usually uh, people don't go for uh, tactics or writing first. 
because these are their so-called culture uh, advances. So you don't get the, the mood token that you can use to make your cities happy. Mm. So usually you would go for one of the happiness advances, you would say, which is irrigation, it's, it's fishing, and it's also MIPS. MIPS is another one that I, I, I quite like. I think I, uh, most games, I never take storage. And most games, I'm always very unhappy about that choice. <laughs> How do you not take storage? Yeah, I, I think that's pretty that's pretty hard one to uh, live without. Storage yeah, allows so you, if you do not have storage, you cannot have more than two food. And uh, so you're going to like get food, like an event card will say, you get three food, but you will get zero and then you'll be sad. Yeah, that happens a lot to me. Um, you're just a rebel. You yeah, like to take the ones that know the things that people don't take. No, no, I'm, I'm just stupid. Just stupid. <laughs> so I'm glad we're asking you for advice then. Let's look at yeah, exactly. Let's look at the the middle of the game. So you, you've gotten your your feet wet. You're into the game. You kind of need to pick a direction. I think there's there's a few definite directions. I think the governments are certainly one of them to pick. All right, this is the government I'm going to go down. This is my target uh, path. The three governments, and I I think also economy. You could go hard on economy. Um, what yeah. what are your feelings on the the a strategic path? Do you think that those are the four strategy paths, or do you think there's there are other ones? There's there's also obviously um, there's a strategy built around uh, education, mm -hmm. where you uh, generate ideas, and ideas can be used to buy technologies. Where usually you would use food, but you can use ideas instead. Mm -hmm. And uh, ideas, food can be used for a lot of stuff, but ideas can only be used for for advancing. Yep. But you get them for free. You get them, uh, all other resources you have to collect, you have to harvest and use actions. But ideas, you actually, they're a weaker resource, but you get them for free. You get them when you build an academy or when you collect from uh, a city with an academy, you get, get an extra idea. Uh, so that's also, if you, if you, you know, wanna go for advances as, as one of your strategies, that's then going for, for education is, uh, yeah, of just getting a lot of advances. Uh, there's a couple that you know take a while to build up to, but I think are pretty powerful that I think players could see as targets. Um, there's the economic liberty uh, on democracy, which lets you get a free action. There's draft and nationalism, which mm. lets you build up a lot of soldiers. If you want to be a warmonger, that's a good way to do it. Uh, there's conversion, yeah. which lets you really work on the cultural influence. And then there's taxation, which lets you, it's one of the, one of the few ways is to like get lots of gold, which gives you a lot of resources. So I think those are all pretty right. powerful ones. To if you want to pick a target, those might be good targets for you. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about those those particular texts? Yeah, I agree that those those are some of the more powerful texts. But you you could do without them. I mean, I think I think if you if you have some, you know, through throughout the game, you get certain objectives, and you might have objectives that are easily your achieved by not going for one of these uh, governments for instance right um because you know you're using actions to get these to get to these governments that actions you might have you know uh be better spent on something else but um so yeah you have to you have to you know be aware of a lot of possibilities and not set your mind on one thing and then just go for that you could do that but usually when i play i'm a little more you could say tactical rather than strategic. Shoot from the hip. Um, you shoot from the hip. <laughs> yeah, I actually made the game so you could shoot from the hip. Um, <laughs> I was I was told I, I actually haven't tried uh, the the fantasy flight uh, uh, civilization. Oh game. really? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't play board games. Oh. Uh, <laughs> 
I haven't tried that, but someone told me when I was in Essen with Clash of Cultures, they told me that one of the differences was that in Sid Meier's civilization, uh, the fantasy flight one, you have to uh, you have to kind of choose a path at the outset, and you have to stick to it. And if you don't do that, you die. Yeah. Um, or you lose. Um, where there, this game is more, I think, you're not so locked. You can you know you can maneuver. There's some maneuver room to try out different things. Uh, most texts aren't that far away. It's not like you move down one uh, one part of the tree, so to speak. And then you can't get back uh, because you've set on one path. You can you can pretty easily you know adjust, and that was actually one of the things I wanted to achieve with the design. And I think you very much uh, achieved that. And it's one of the things I really appreciate about the game, especially in comparison to that Fantasy Flight game, which I have played. You get a character card, which definitely sets you down a path. There are you know four different ways to win, and once you choose one direction, you really got to go hard down that direction. As Christian says, yeah. you can really be flexible in this game. And one of the tools that really lets you be flexible and that I really appreciate is the objective cards. They they give you guideposts, but also those guideposts are double-sided. You have two different options on those to, to go for either of those, or you can, you can ignore some of them. I mean, there's a lot of different potential. You could go really hard for advances with that education route that, that Christian was talking about, try to get a lot of advances, or you could really go hard for objectives, or you could really go hard on one of the governments, or and you can really change your paths midstream. I really appreciate the amount of flexibility that's in this game, and, and I think it's one of the reasons that, that I love it so much, and, and I hope you listeners enjoy it as well. Uh, so let's just get to the, the end of the game. We get to the end of the game. Uh, any any tips for people playing their first game when, when we're getting to round five, round six? Uh, yeah, all bets are off. <laughs> now is the time to send your army after someone. One of the things that typically happens is, you know, you have this army or you have this agreement and the upside of conquering someone's large city is so large that it will probably appeal to someone to try it out if you're not careful. So uh, yeah, I would uh, I would I would keep that in mind. Please. Yeah, and one of the things that, to mention, I mean, it's like about a forty victory point game. So if you take someone's four point city or or with a wonder, that could be a nine point city. That could be an eighteen point victory point swing. Uh, so as as you say, right. it can get right. so tempting that someone someone's just gonna go for it. Um, you have those objective cards. You get one per round. You you might have six or seven. How many of those objectives do you think people should try? What's a reasonable number that they should try to finish? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's it varies a lot. I mean, sometimes it will be three because you focus on some things, and other times people, you know, take them all. But I think standard would be, you know, a little over half of them. I would guess yeah, about four or so. Yeah, something like that. And you uh, you think you need to build a wonder to win? Uh, no. no? Or no, steal one, right? No. Yeah, you can steal <laughs> wonder, or uh, or you could, you know, you could also one of the tricks is to also kind of. Uh, force the other players to build up or spend their resources in a way that's not optimal to them. Ah, yeah. So, so, so if if you just let someone sit there and build a wonder and you're not really applying any pressure to them, then yeah, you'll probably lose to that wonder. 
but <clears throat> you could slowly, you know, start moving your armies forward or making it clear that you could actually attack them and things like that. So they have to, you know, spend their resources to defend their, their cities. Yeah, this, that's um, a very valid point. If someone's winning, you can threaten them, not maybe not even intending to take their, their city, but because you threaten them, I mean, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're not going to defend it and then you're going to take it and get a bunch of points or you're just going to force them to burn a bunch of resources that they were going to turn into victory points. Right. Yeah, and then hope that they don't turn those armies toward you. <laughs> <laughs> that that is the downside. That is for sure. So there's one more thing I got. I got to take you to task for. So all right. So I build up. I get I get five wood and six food and and four ore and I pay five culture tokens and I build the great pyramid, and I get a cardboard standee. Why is it a cardboard standee, Mr. Markison? It makes me so sad. Yeah. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I think it's the difference between a, a $60 game and a $100 yeah. game. Uh, seven yeah, seven we wonder doing, tokens? Uh, oh, it's too bad. Actually, uh, I, I tried to sell the idea of having plastic wonders. Uh, I, I was kind of, you know, just presenting it as if there was no other option. All right, so yeah, no, we're going to have seven plastic <laughs> wonders and we're going to... Custom, seven but, uh, custom plastic wonders. And and right, so you're and on, you were on my side. Game. That's all That's... I want to know, that you wanted the plastic uh, figurines too. I'm on the let's make it as extravagant as and thematic as possible side. Yes. Yeah. But somebody's made some cool little 3D ones. Have you seen those? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's pretty so cool. So I guess you can you can bling out your own game if, if you want to. I I probably will look for that option. Well, Mr. Markison, I can't thank you enough for spending an evening with me discussing your great game, Clash of Cultures. Uh, I hope you'll you'll all support his his wonderful work and go out and purchase yourself a copy. Thank you so much, sir, for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. Part four, footnotes. So that was my interview and discussion with Christian Markison. It was so kind of him to come on the show and, and spend some time with me. I really appreciate it. Even though he took a few pot shots at one of my favorite games, Advanced Civilization, uh, he's a really nice guy, so I guess we'll forgive him that. <laughs> one other note about that interview in that the, the Skype call, for whatever reason, the two audio tracks ended up overlapping a little bit on each other so if it sounded like I was cutting him off over and over again I, I wasn't really it just kind of was how the audio worked out so I apologize for that the first print run of this game sold out quite fast um, I in fact am waiting for my own personal copy I'm, I'm excited to get my hands on a copy I've been told that the the second printing should be in stores sometime late summer maybe August September something like that so you and me will we'll wait together hopefully we'll be able to get a copy very soon so just a couple footnotes about tiebreakers and variants and such. Uh, as I joked at the end of the meet there, the, the actual tiebreaker is whoever has the wonder of the Great Pyramids uh, wins in the case of a tie. But then from there, you just go down the different categories of points. There's four listed in order, and the first one is the first tiebreaker, and so on. It's very hard to have a complete tie. There are a few nice variants at the end of the rules. Um, I, I know there's some people who don't like the random events. There's actually a, a variant to deal with that. You can do no events. So you draw the events, but you just do the icons. 
and or you could also have optional events where you just you decide whether or not you want to draw an event when you get to it personally i love the flavor of it uh you know it does add some randomness to the game but i i think it adds some fun too i recommend you play with them next is the four round game if you want to just play four rounds instead of six as i've said many times anything that kind of cuts the full experience in two-thirds is never a version I'm really happy with, but if you really can't bring yourself to play a, a four or five hour game, then, then maybe this is an option for you. The next option I really like, there's a, a variable end game. The turn track is double-sided, and on one side, you know, it's just a standard six rounds, uh, but on the other side, once you get to the, the sixth round, the second turn of the sixth round, you're going to start rolling a die, and that the die roll of doom, and if you get a certain number, the probability increases as you go throughout. The game could go up to seven rounds. That will determine whether that is the final turn of the game or not. This works out really well because it forces you to kind of gamble, forces you to make some educated guesses, and you can't be quite as calculating and set everything up to sort of end on that last turn and get everything right where you want it to be. You sort of have to take some chances, and it, it, makes, it makes it pretty fun. Or there's another option here when someone builds a wonder during one of the last turns then that's the last turn, which, which I think could be a fun way to do it too. So I do suggest, especially that, that roll the die uh, ending, I, I think it works very well. But I think that's about it for Clash of Cultures. I want to thank Christian Markison once again for his time, for coming on the show. I want to thank all of you for, especially those thousand that joined the guild, really showing support for the show. I don't know if I'm going to be able to put out one a month anymore. There are two main reasons you're not seeing as much from how to play anymore. Number one is the, the constraints on my time. But number two is, honestly, I'm running out of games that I love as much as the 43 other games that I've put out so far. And this Clash of Cultures is definitely one that I did fall in love with and was happy to share. And, and I'm excited that I hope that a lot of you get a chance to play. So hopefully, you know, I do have a couple left in my bag of tricks of games that I love that I haven't uh, produced an episode for yet. Uh, but other than that, I guess I'm, I'm sort of waiting to fall in love with a few more games. And when I do, you'll be the first to know. So stay subscribed, be patient. Thanks for your continued support. It's time to turn out the lights once again in the How to Play studios. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play podcast. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Hey, you're still here.
Do you watch Downton Abbey? Well, I started to watch Downton Abbey. Jeff Engelstein said he was watching it, and I like to be cool, and Jeff's like the coolest gamer geek around so i'm like man if jeff's watching that i I gotta start watching it so so i'm watching it and i get into like season three and semi half spoiler here lord grantham loses his family's fortune do you know how lord grantham lost his family fortune by investing all of his family's fortune in the canadian grand trunk railroad lord grantham really should have played 1856 if he was an 18xx veteran and, and knew 1856, he would have known that the whole goal of that game is just to suck all the money out of those railroads that are doomed to fail before the Canadian government railway takes them all over. Silly Lord Grantham. I know who I want to play 18xx with. Sit to my left, bucko. I'll show you who's Lord of the Abbey.